now for our time in God's Word together, we are going to be, we're backtracking in our series back to Exodus chapter 4, 18 through 31. Exodus chapter 4, 18 through 31. I think this might be one of the least preached texts in the whole Bible, and you're going to see why. Um, is that setting you up for low expectations? No, you should expect, but my point is you're going to have to work. So my expectations are actually on you guys. You're going to have to pay close attention. I definitely recommend either having a Bible in front of you or having the text on the screen because um, it's going to take some thinking, folks. All right, let's pray before we begin. God, I pray that, that we'd be able to hear your word this morning, that through the help of the Holy Spirit, it, it would not only make sense to us, but it would build us the way you want us to be built, that it would make disciples out of us and help us to more faithfully and courageously follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. There was once a, a time in my life, re really it was maybe just a few days, um, where I thought I could build something out of wood. <laughs> now let me, let me explain. Me and house projects and tools don't really get along all that well. I was a musician before I was a pastor, and my father was a modern dancer. <laughs> this is true. And Sharon was actually caught off guard by this. The first house project I ever attempted when we were married was to retile our kitchen. Now, her dad was like a general contractor, and so I asked him for advice. And let's just say that partway through that project, I had a complete meltdown to where I was throwing things, breaking things, and like, okay, let's put it this way. Our dog never went in the kitchen again because she thought it was like haunted by demons or something like that. Like she would come up right to the kitchen and be like, ooh, you don't go in there. All right? There's something about building things, fixing things, doing house projects. All you engineers, I'm looking at engineers right now. I'm like, gee, there's something about it that just rubs a raw spot in my soul and makes me feel useless and helpless. But this time it was going to be different. This was a new chapter. YouTube had come into its own, and it had to be done. That's the other thing, is it was, it was now or never. I had to build a triple bunk bed. We were just about to have our fourth child, we do not have a big house, and so we needed room. How, where do you get a triple bunk bed? The answer is nowhere. There is no furniture company that's like, yeah, somebody needs this. They're like, that's ridiculous. Who would need a triple bunk bed? Us, that's who. But in the dark corners of YouTube, there was a how-to video on building a triple bunk bed, and I watched it, and it didn't look that hard. So I went to Home Depot. And I didn't get wood, I got lumber. Because when you know how to build things, it's lumber, not wood. Right? Yeah. I mean, an oak tree is wood, a two-by-four is lumber, folks. Learn it. And I got all that lumber, and I put it in my Volvo. It was like, you know, it was all packed in there. This was all like a lot of wood, or lumber. And... <laughs> It was like just me at the steering wheel, like packed it. It was like down on the wheel wells. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is happening. And I got back, and I did all my cuts, and it was going good. We actually sent the kids away for the weekend. 
Sharon looked at me admiringly. You know, she was all big and pregnant. Look at my man building things out of lumber. <laughs> it was going good. Things were changing. This was a new day for Matt Morjinski. The thing is, is that, you know, like right angles and being flush is important when you build a triple bunk bed. Because it's these very big, like, bed frames uh, that, that are quite heavy. And so the structure of it, it's got to be right. Um, but we have a house that before, you guys, most of you guys have seen it after it's been fixed up, after the house fire and it was rebuilt and all that. Before that, nothing was flush in the house. So I was working on a floor that had an inch of pitch across it. And I'm trying to like get right angles and everything, and, and it's, I'm getting physically tired. It took multiple days, right? And there was one, I remember I, I, I drove in a screw, and, and then it just looked off, and like that was the last straw, and something inside of me snapped. And, and I just, I was like, Sharon, we can't do this, right? Like I was so cocky before. I, I was full of that, that tragic Greek flaw of hubris, right? I could do this. I can do this easily. It's on YouTube. No problem. I am a man. I was born for this, whatever. And then I hit that point where it just got punctured, and I went into full freakout mode. I started trying to dis disassemble the bed in a panic. I'm like, this is going to kill our kids. And I'm like trying to unscrew it. Sharon's like, no. <laughs> and I, I, went, I went from like, I can't build this. I went from I could do this easily and I could probably do anything uh, to I not only can't build this bunk bed, but I'm a terrible parent and my kids are going to die because of me. Right? Like I swung that hard and that far. And I'm the only one that's ever done that. Gone from, I can do it. A little hubris, you know? A little, I am enough. And swung quickly to helpless. I can't do it, and I'm worthless. We all do this, guys. Some of you guys have packed your lives with so many things. Like, I've got my job, my side hustle, my badminton club and, and like and you pack it pack it pack it because you know you got to be a super achiever and if you're if you're not like maxing out your schedule to the utmost you know you're worthless or something and you look at that schedule and say well i know this person does it and i'm at least as good as them hubris and then at a certain point, you're like, I've got an ulcer, and I, I can't do this, and you know what? I'm going to quit everything, and, that, right? and you completely fall apart from hubris to helpless. You take on some big challenge, a degree program, starting a business, a church plant, <laughs> and some days, you know, you're like, yes, I can do all of this. You know why? Because... I read a book by somebody who says that you can do this if you just do it like me, and I'm at least as good as them. Hubris. And then you hit those bumps, and you hit those setbacks, and you find out the gaping holes in your own heart, and you swing all the way to helpless. Am I describing any of you right now? No, just me? Right. You hit a big problem as a parent, as a spouse, wherever. And you're looking up at that problem like, okay, 
I looked up, uh, I follow someone on Instagram who knows how to deal with this. And you know what? I can do it too. And you get yourself gassed up and juiced up to the point where you have a little hubris. Yes, I am equal to the challenges of my life. I can do it if I just don't sleep and work harder, harder, harder. I'll get out of debt. I'll kick this habit. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then the gap appears, right? The distance between your ability and the problem and what happens. That hubris, that puffed up gets punctured. And you shrink until you feel helpless. This swing from hubris to helpless is something that, that plagues all of us. We find ourselves there. And, and we don't get what else we're supposed to do. You know? Am I, am I able to do this or am I not? In the story of Moses, which... You know, Exodus so far has been really focused on him. He starts out, as soon as he steps on the scene as an adult, we see hubris. What does he do? It says he looked in chapter 3. I want you to remember the numbers, 3. In chapter 3, the first thing he does is he looks out on the oppression of his people. He sees somebody, a Hebrew being beaten by a taskmaster. What does he do? He's like, I can just kill this guy. Kills him, hides him in the sand. That's how he solves that darn problem. And then the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he's like, hey, I'm like your leader now. I'm here to deliver you. And they're like, no. And he finds out someone's, the Pharaoh's after his life. He runs away. He collapses. To the point where in chapter 4, so from chapter 3, hubris, chapter 4, when God tells him, hey, I'm raising you up to go deliver your people like you wanted, what does he say? Remember? Send someone else. Helpless. He says, I'm going to send you, send you to the elders. They're going to believe you. Like, they won't believe me. I'm going to send you into Pharaoh. Pharaoh won't listen to me. Hubris to helpless. So three, hubris, four, helpless. Chapter five, which is just after what we're going to be covering today. I'm just going to read you verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. What does that sound like? It sounds like boldness. Something happened to this dude, huh? He went from hubris to helpless, and now boldness. You know what comes in between uh, chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 5, verse 1? You got it, our text today, chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, okay? Maybe something happens to Moses here that transforms him, something he learns about God, an experience he has with God. What could this be? Let's take a look. Verse 18, says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. What do you think? So the Bible rarely tells us, often shows us. God has just given him this call, you know, to, to go back and, and, and bring his people out of Egypt. He's literally on a mission from God. And what's the first person he tells? What does he say? I got to go back to Egypt. Why? See if my brothers are still alive. It's not exactly I'm on a mission from God, is it? It's pretty weak. We see that his fear is still there, isn't it? 
We're going to learn something about God right now. I want you to pay close attention, verses 19 and 20. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, why does it say in Midian? Reminding us where he is. In Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Wait, so this God is aware of what's happening in Midian and what's happening back in Egypt. There was no cell phones at the time, I want to remind you. So this God knows, and, and not only that, you have to remember that from the mountain of God back to where his father-in-law was, it would have been a, a journey of some weeks. And so Moses getting clearance to go back to Egypt just happens to coincide with the death of the people seeking his life. The, the path clears while he's asking for it in Midian. What is this telling us about God? That not only is he aware, but he's what? He's actually orchestrating this. That he's in control of these events, that he is sovereign. And we're going to see this again and again and again, is that, is that Moses moves and it just so happens it's God's timing, right? So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We see he intends to carry out God's, God's uh, mission. The first thing we see in this text is that God is sovereign. Now, that's a theological word I'm going to explain. Sovereign just means that God is in charge, that God has a plan and is executing his plan, that everything is actually under his dominion, even if they don't acknowledge him. And we're going to see that very strongly here. Now, how does the fact that God is sovereign help us get off of this pendulum of hubris and helpless? Well, back in... Um, Back in 1793, you had the, what must be the first modern mission trip. There's a guy named William Carey who just had a burden on his heart that the people of India would hear the gospel and know Jesus. There was no such thing as like a mission sending board or books written on how to do this. And so he just got there because like, he was a shoemaker. That's what he did for a living. He just got there. And he didn't, he didn't know the language. He didn't know a person there. And get this, for seven years he was there. He eventually learned the language. He was trying to just minister the gospel. For seven years, no one came to Christ. Could you stick that out? I don't know that I could. He did. A stranger in a strange land. You know, completely over his head. How did he do it? How did he not do the whole... Yes, I can, to helpless thing. No, I can't. I'm out of here. He said that one day when he was looking at the huge crowds of Calcutta, he felt intimidated. He felt truly intimidated. Then he remembered a verse from the book of Acts. Do not worry. I have many people in this city. And he remembered that God is sovereign over who comes to Christ. And that's what allowed him to keep sharing the gospel, knowing that the success of this did not depend on him. It depended on God. When we are sitting there saying, you know, I've got to take control of my life. And, you know, you puff yourself up until you're prideful enough that, that you actually try. And then you find out you can't. And you fail at it. And you swing all the way to helpless. You need to remember that God is actually sovereign over the course of your life. That God is sovereign over our nation. Over this church. 
You know, like if we sit here sweating every little bump, oh, we've got to take control, we've got to do better, we'll do more, right? Like we need to be faithful. But the ultimate outcomes are not in our hands. God is sovereign over your family. God is sovereign over the number of days that you live. Now, I'm not saying don't like have a bacon sandwich and five smokes after service, but, you know, like to a certain extent, we, we, we've simply got to say, you know what? It, it isn't all about me. Does that mean that our kind of our actions don't matter? Right? Far from it. Think of it like this. The conductor of an orchestra, right? That, that guy or gal is in charge. They are the leader and the voice. And they are, they're pulling all of these pieces together to make the orchestra happen. You can tell I don't know much about classical music. I'm doing my best here. But the, can, the orchestra, can the conductor simply be like, I don't need anybody? No, the, the, all of the contributions of the various musicians and everybody else, uh, there is nobody else, it's all musicians, uh, right? He or she pulls them together into the, uh, into the, the, the final product, right? It, it's kind of like that. It doesn't mean our, 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 our actions and efforts are for nothing. It means that their outcome depends on God. God is sovereign. Great, I've solved all the problems, right? No, God's sovereignty itself is something we have to wrestle with. And we're going to start wrestling now. Ready? Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay. We'll get to that whole thing, the firstborn, like when that happens. But, you know, it raises this question of like, wait a second. If God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, how is God still holding him responsible? Right? Is, is, is God deciding this, or is he free to choose? And the answer is yes. Now, the hardening of the heart means that he's, he's locking Pharaoh into his chosen course. He makes him stubborn, right? Sometimes in Exodus, it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened being unspecific about who, who's doing the hardening. Sometimes it says God hardened his heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Which is it? Uh-huh. You crazy yet? Your mind breaking yet? Everybody who, like, has it all sorted out on the whole Calvinism, Arminianism thing, help the rest of us, all right? God's sovereignty doesn't always make sense to us. It raises questions for us. It can be a struggle. Now it gets worse. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Hmm? Makes sense? I'm going, to get, I'm going to pause. I'm going to let all you guys post that as your verse of the day on Instagram. 
What's going on? <laughs> Is this troubling? It's troubling, yeah? Yeah, okay, God sends Moses, and then he meets him at an inn to put him to death. I actually read one commentator that says, well, the difficulty is made much easier if it's Moses' son that he's putting to death, right? Because the, the pronoun's actually unspecific. It says it put him to death. And I'm like, I don't think you will know what difficulty means, right? Like, either way, this is, this is strange. God is alarming here. What's going on? Now, I do think it is talking about putting Moses to death. Be, does anybody care why? It's not, it's not his son, but Moses, because it, it's a pronoun which naturally refers you back to the last named male subject, which is Moses. Does that make sense? So last, last man, Moses did then Moses went, God met him to put him to death, met him all at an end to put him to death. All right, so just going to move on because we all understand what's, I'm kidding. Um, so observations here. First off, nobody dies. Did you notice that? Moses is not put to death. I think even the, the God sought to put him to death is Moses, the writer, struggling for language for what actually happened. What was this like as an experience? Like, how do you become aware that God is trying to put you, seeking to put you to death? You know, it's like windy or something. <laughs> the doors are banging. Oh, God, Terry, put me to death. Right? Like, it's, it's unexplained. But if God really wants you dead, it's like in the movies, you know, where the assassin's like, don't worry. If I wanted, if I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. Like, God's better than an assassin at, at stuffing out life. He holds the power of life and death, correct? So something's going on there to where God was seeking to put him to death, but he didn't die. All right, so that's a question mark. But don't bury the headline here. Moses is actually being radically unfaithful. Where do we see that? What is the sign of circumcision? Or what is the sign of the covenant? I said it. It's circumcision, <laughs> right? Who is Moses? He's the covenant head. He's the dude. He's the leader. It's like if I was like, you came to my house and my kids, like there's no food in the fridge and they just kind of go on rummage in dumpsters, which you might think from we can't keep food in our house, you know, and you just see my kids like rummaging in dumpsters, and you're like, man, you, you don't feed your kids? I'm like, no, no big, no big deal, godly otherwise. You'd be like, what? You want to lead a community, and you don't even feed your own kids? That's radical unfaithfulness. For Moses not to circumcise his son and say, I'm going to be the covenant leader, that's radical unfaithfulness. And here's the other thing. Actually, God's providential mercy is here. Do you know where? Who saves the day and circumcises the son in a jiff? It's his wife, Zipporah, right? With the whole bridegroom of blood thing. Do you guys care about the explanation for that? No one knows. Um, why does she touch, she, why does she circumcise him and then touch the foreskin to Moses' feet and say, you're a bridegroom of blood? It's possible that it's ceremonial language, that this is what you did in Midianite culture. Her father was a priest. She knew about circumcision. That's possible, but nobody knows. So there's your explanation. You're all sad at me. But we see God's providence 
in a pattern. Who's the first person that saved Moses' life in the book of Exodus? Do you remember? His mom. Well, the midwife who, who didn't kill Hebrew boys, and then his mom who, who put him in the basket, then his sister who watched over him, then the Pharaoh's daughter who, who took him out of the river and protected him, and then when he fled to Midian, who? It was Zipporah. He just happens to run in to, to this, this group of sisters, Zipporah among them, who take him in. And, and then she's there to save the day and just happens to be a priest's daughter and knows how to do a circumcision. Quinky-dink, right? No, it's providence. It's God's sovereignty right there, isn't it? When the, the, the difficulty that, that sovereignty raises for us is, first of all, it's like, do my choices matter? And, and the other, it's like, can I trust God? Because God's sovereignty could be hard to understand. Because we have to say, if God is sovereign, then it's not, just, it's not just the things we celebrate that come from his hand, but the things that we lament as well. Make sense? And, and when those things that we lament, suffering, sickness, wars, and the rest of it, if we say God is sovereign over that too, it's really hard for us to understand. Like, like God showing up in this alarming way here. Wait, that's God too. One time, um, my dog, who's no longer with us, but we loved her very much, Harriet. She was a Labrador, yellow lab. Some of you guys know Harriet. She was the sweetest dog, and she was very, very energetic. One time, running around in our yard, somehow she got a deep cut right, right on her, uh, her lower leg, and it was, it was clean through the skin all the way down to muscle. And so I, I took her to the vet, and the vet said, actually, we can't sew this up. All you can do is disinfect it and wash it every single day and rebandage it every single day. Here's what that meant. I would have to take Harriet, and she was strong. I would have to chase her down because she somehow knew it was time. She would be like, I'm going to go this way. I'd have to grab her. I'd have to drag her to the bathroom, which she did not like. I'd have to force her into the tub, which she hated because she hated baths. I'd have to take the bandage, I'd have to rip it off. And that hurt, and she would go like this, look at me with those eyes. I'm like, sorry. And then I'd have, to, I'd have to wash it with soap and water, and she'd like try and take her paw away, and I'm like, oh God, I feel like a monster. And, and then I'd have to put uh, hydrogen peroxide in it, and that would, you know, she would, she would whimper at that. I'd have to put ointment on it, which she didn't mind. And then I'd have to rewrap it every single day, and she's just looking at me, and I can hear the dog thoughts of like, I thought you loved me, right? I thought I was, I thought I was your girl, man. Now, if I tried to explain to her why I was doing that, would that help? If I gave her the explanation, I was like, H-Dog, listen, you'll die from an infection if I don't do this every day. I say that to her. Does that help? Is she feeling better? God's sovereignty can be really hard for us to understand and accept. When we look at the suffering in the world or in our own lives, and I'm not talking about just little things, I'm not just talking about career setbacks, even though those are, those are major. I'm, I'm talking about serious illnesses. I'm talking about major fallout, pain and grief. 
You say, how, how does this result in God's glory and our good? We don't get it. It's hard for us to understand why God would allow this in his sovereign plan. And we're like, we would feel so much better if we just knew why, right? Why this, this, this earthquake in Turkey? Why? Do you think that if God told us the reason it would make any sense to us, would that actually help any more than me explaining to Harriet why I had to disinfect her paw? Now, how does this help us get off of the hubris to helpless pendulum? If, if our belief in God's sovereignty, if, if we only say, if when we get a check that we weren't expecting, God is sovereign, and that's our only understanding of sovereignty is that only good things come, well, it falls apart when something bad comes. And we'd have to say, God's not in control of that, right? What kind of God is that? a non-sovereign God, a God that isn't in charge. And what does that mean then? It means that all the suffering, it means that all of that is either a failure of God or God doesn't care. If we abandon the, the, the belief in God's sovereignty with the hard things, we have to abandon it totally. And we're back to hubris and helpless, aren't we? But if we say even the things we don't understand, are from his hand. When, when the shoes drop, you know what I mean? If we say, you know what? I don't get this, but God is not surprised. God is not overpowered. And the world is not spun out of his, out of his control. There's another essential part to this. Look with me at verses 27 uh, through 28. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So we leave Moses at the end after that scene, and now we're over with Aaron. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And I, I, did, I said kissed him weird. I didn't mean to. I was thinking of something else, and I kissed him. It wasn't an, it wasn't an intended emphasis. I'm sorry. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So we see again God's sovereignty. Where? If I sent you, if I was like, uh, Corey, um, my uncle's in Fort Collins, go get him. Would you find him? No. I'll just send you in the general direction of Fort Collins. You're like, all right, do you have his number or something like that? All right, so Aaron is just like, hey, go, to the, go, go that way to the wilderness, trackless wilderness, no city names, no nothing, and he finds Moses. Again, the Bible doesn't always tell us. It shows us that God's hand is on this. Look with me now at 29 through 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, exactly what Moses was afraid would fail. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So what was he afraid? The people won't believe me. What do they do? They believe and they start worshipping. The people of God are now converted to the worship of Yahweh, right? Did it succeed? 
Yes, just like God said it would when Moses said, there's no way. And then the very next verse, Moses is walking into the, the throne room. So what do we see? We see that God's foretold results, how he said the plan was going to work, it did work. Even when it got strange, it worked, right? And we also see that Moses is a different cat. He is transformed. He is now carrying out the mission without any send someone else or hesitation. So we see here, not only is God sovereign, and yes, that sovereignty raises difficulties, but God's sovereign, sovereignty is vindicated. When you see the end result, it makes sense. You tracking? I remember um, I've been a longtime uh, sports talk listener. I love it still. And I remember when the New York Giants hired Tom Coughlin. I know, football. Some of you are like, sports game, whatever. All right, football. You know what football is. There's a coach. We, we good, non-sports people. And I remember when they hired this guy, because the, the Giants had a talented team, but they were underperforming every year. And the year before, they went 4-12. and 12. That's bad. And, um, and they hired this guy who was old school. He was grouchy. He was a strict disciplinarian. And I remember the, the sports commentators were like, this is never going to work in today's NFL. That, you, know, you need a player coach who's nicer and whatnot. This guy wasn't nice. He fined you. He fined you for being five minutes early to a meeting. He said, you're five minutes late. He's that kind of guy, hard, right? And, and his first year, it didn't go that good. Their record didn't approve all that much. And every, I remember just killing him. Oh, this doesn't work. He doesn't know what he's doing. Ah, how could he, right? How could they be so stupid? And then he won the Super Bowl and another one. And they're like, he's a genius. Look at this, this, you know, He's, he doesn't listen to anybody else. He goes his own way, has his plan, knows it's going to work. He was vindicated, right? When you see the end result, God's sovereignty is vindicated. And we're like, yay, can we see it? No, not until the end. Well, can we hurry up to the end? You're all dead. That's, <laughs> that's what you're asking for. Here's the thing. If God is sovereign in this way, so that even the hard things are, are in his hand and from his hand, we have to ask, well, how do we walk with that sovereign God? How is it different from the hubris to helpless thing? This is not from the book of Exodus. It's from the Proverbs, but it's a good summation. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's what it looks like to walk with a so sovereign God, is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. Yes, it doesn't make sense to us. It truly doesn't. But it does make sense to God. The world is not spun out of his control. Now, for the first audience, the people who were just on the other side of the Exodus, the first generation after the Exodus, they were still facing a lot of danger. They were having to follow God into battles and difficulty and wilderness and uncertainty. And all they had was their faith in God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. And that's true for us as well. Think about this. You, you pile up all those commitments on yourself, you know, and eventually break. Could it be 
that you believe that really my hands are the only safe hands for any of this stuff, right? Like for, for pastors, over-functioning in ministry, that's a real danger to burn yourself out. So you say, well, I, I've got to do it. Do you guys think that me going on sabbatical in a few months is not an exercise in faith in God's sovereignty? Yeah, I'm a little freaked out. And so you, you overload yourself because you think, well, if I don't do it, it won't happen. This thing won't succeed. This endeavor won't succeed unless I do it, right? That's hubris. And then you crash into helplessness. Instead, trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding. It might allow you to actually let some of those things go and trust them to God. When you take on those huge tasks, and, and many of them are, are callings from God. I'm not saying don't be ambitious with what you undertake. I'm not saying don't take risks. I'm saying take big risks. But, but we have to enter into those risks, whether it's a business, a degree program, starting a family, whatever it is you're afraid to do, God's probably calling you to do it. That's how the calling of God works, right? It's to, it's to say, you know what? I am going to put my hand to this. I'm going to be faithful to it. But its ultimate outcome is not in my hands. I don't control whether this works or not, whether this succeeds or not. I need to trust in the Lord and not lean on my own understanding. When you're looking up at that problem, whatever it is, and you're like, hey, no one solves this but me. You're absolutely wrong. Yes, what you do matters. But it's God that's going to give you the ability. It's God that's going to give you the, the, the whatever, whatever becomes of it is from the hand of God. We need to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. Please pray with me.